Hello, and welcome to Avatar The Last Korra. Guys, are you ready to do an activity together today? Oh, As no. As we, we record a podcast, that's an activity, right, David? Are we that's doing an activity. an activity now? Yeah, we're, we're <laughs> heading up north. We're heading up north today. Um, we're going to the Northern Air Temple. Yeah. And then we're going to the North fucking Pole. We're going to meet Santa Claus. It's going to be a hell of a time. We're going to meet uh, him and find the meaning of Christmas. Um, <laughs> it's, and the it's, true meaning of Christmas is social justice. Isn't that yes, right, Hannah? It, it really, um, really is. Um, because uh, today we're doing the most woke Avatar The Last Airbender episodes, I think. <laughs> or at least the only ones that are about, you know, like, social topics uh, that I could think of. Or at least that we've experienced so far. Definitely that we've experienced so far. I, I think there's a couple of more that that come into play uh, in, in seasons two and three, but... Right. I mean, we've had, like, environmental stuff, but we've yeah. never had the cultural appropriation episode <laughs> or... The gender, uh, the gender equality and and, and well, uh, gender roles episode. I mean, we definitely we definitely talked about sex- sexism in episode one. Uh, I, I right, our- but it's just given like sort of like a name drop, like Sokka is sexist, a drop, and then <laughs> this one is like the waterbending master is we're actually going to be talking about a society in which women have a, an expected role and Katara has to, you know, uh, dethrone the patriarchy to some extent Hell in order yeah. to, uh, progress the plot. Yeah. Um, also we're, we're obviously talking about Korra and I, I think it's kind of neat that we're at the point in, um, Avatar where they're, they're also in the, the, one of the poles, and most of Korra yeah, right now is, is down in the South in, Pole. Yeah, it's it's an interesting sort of synchronicity. Um, uh, but yeah, they're they're in the pole and uh, they're dealing with uh, civil war. It's Korra civil war. We did Endgame first. <laughs> they got it kind of out of order. <laughs> God, Avatar, why couldn't you do this in order? Jesus, Korra, gotta get it. Gotta get it in order. Um, um, let's, let's, let's start with our, our avatar social justice before we move into the, the weird Cora semi-attempt at social justice that isn't anything. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Um, let's, yeah, let's start with, uh, you know, we've got our first, uh, differently abled character in the avatar universe, which is, uh, Teo. Who's mm-hmm. like he's in a wheelchair? Uh, he's in a wheelchair, but he can fly. So it's it's sort of that that was something that uh, I think that the creators had always wanted to do was um, to have characters with disabilities who um, aren't really like taken out of the story because of their disabilities because right. of other things in the plot. They're given the chance to you know be equally or you know even sometimes even greater assets to. Uh, the characters than than their able-bodied county counterparts. Right, and I think we'll get to even more of this when we encounter Toph in season two. But but for now, we're we're starting it off with Teo um, and his inventor dad, who invented him a wheelchair and invented yeah. these flying rigs based off of the um, the gliders that were found in this this air temple. Um, and I always forget that this episode 
opens with them, like, hearing a story about, like, the quote-unquote air walkers and, like, how yeah. fucking irrelevant it is to the rest of the episode. Well, it's, like, it's an interesting way for them to figure out the story because, like, it makes sense that they would sit down with, like, these villagers and hear about the tales of the airbenders and assume that it was, like, from a long time ago and then for them to be like, no, this we just saw them last week. And then be like, what? There's airbenders that are alive? And and then to find out that they're not. It's a little different than the other times that we'll visit, you know, air temples where we'll do it just because we need a place to stay or because we, you know, haven't learned about airbending or air temples yet. You know, there are other reasons to go. This time they went because they heard Maybe there might be some alive. airbenders there. Yeah. Um, turns out there, there's not, um, but on the way there we get sort of like a, there's a, there's a lot of like yin and yang sort of going on in this, this, uh, episode where there's a lot of like pes- pessimism versus optimism, culture versus science, um, history versus modernity, you know, like there's a lot of, uh, dualities being explored in this episode. I yeah. Think. I don't think that it really gets to the heart of those. No, at all, it doesn't. It doesn't really dig into any of them, but it, it brings a lot of them up. Yeah, I think it's interesting that because they're in this situation where they have to kind of wrap things up neatly within a half hour, and they also have to have a big action climax to the episode. This one feels super rushed. Did you get that feeling? Yeah, a little bit. Um, I felt like the pacing was way off in this episode. <laughs> like it was just. Like, all of a sudden, like, we just keep finding out new things about this, like, tinkerer guy that it turns out he's a secret Nazi and that he, <laughs> you know, then we get, like, the backstory of the, the the war happening and then there's a giant battle and it's over in, like, ten seconds. Um, yeah. And then these, like, big tanks come out and he's like, I think they have something to do with water. And, like, Katara's like, I got this shit. And then fucking kicks the, <laughs> the tanks in half. <laughs> Because they have something to do with water. <laughs> it's some pretty sick water bending, though. Yeah, but I just feel like like the pacing it just goes so quickly uh, once it gets started, and but we also have like long periods of time where we're just discussing like how angry Ang is at all the, right. the the happenings. Yeah. So so they arrive at this air temple and. And this is the first time Aang brings up this idea of, like, an airbending spirit, like, whether you have it or not. Um, it's also and, the last time, basically. Uh, no, It's he, really he just for the purposes of this episode. Well, yeah, in this episode. But but within the episode, it's brought up. Um, I know, like, I'm just saying, like, times. it's a construct to... I, because what an airbending spirit means in the context of this episode is, um, are you allowed to uh, use my culture? Um, you know, do you, do you respect the ideals of airbending enough to borrow aspects of my culture that you don't have any ownership of? Right. Um, so, so at first he's like, yeah, there's people gliding, but they're not airbenders. They don't have the spirit, quote unquote. Um, and then there's like a shonen air battle (laughs) for respect, uh, with Teo. And I was like, all right, you do have the spirit of an airbender. Um, so you're gonna, allowed to you're allowed. dress up like me for Halloween or... Uh, or use a glider. You know, right, or redecorate this temple to be 
more modern. Yeah, it's really weird because like the the whole thing is that his dad, who's this mechanist, they were you know war uh, refugees, and they came across this abandoned place, and you know he's in quote unquote improving it. Um, to to make it more livable for the people who are there who don't have airbending powers. Um, and I, I believe there's like, I don't know, there's a really interesting back and forth that happens when Aang and he first meet, um, where the mechanist is like, I'm improving on what was already here, and, uh, or isn't that what nature does, improve on what's already there? And Aang says, nature knows when to stop. And he goes, progress has a way. Which doesn't make any sense. It doesn't. Uh, And then he just goes, progress has a way of getting away from us. Which just really just feels like an apology for his, like, Nazism that we find out (laughs) later about. Yeah, it's more like, it's, it's more like he is forced to do this progress because otherwise he's a threat of death from the Fire Nation. Right. Um, rather than, like, technology itself forcing the progress of you know changing these temples and destroying these ancient artifacts i mean when it gets down to it i mean like this is very similar to like real situations that happen and the fact that like the episode so brazenly like sides with the the mechanist being like well as long as you try to be respectful you can continue living here on stolen land on you know where a genocide previously happened yeah um like, the fact that it comes down so heavily, like, Aang's like, I forgive you, you can live here, and I'm glad that you're living here, because you're like a hermit crab. Um, right. A hermit crab living in a Native American, uh, a Native American burial ground. Right. <laughs> um, like, watch out for ghosts, watch out for airbender ghosts. <laughs> yeah, and, and, like, they try to do this, like, weird thing at the end where... Um, you know, like they have these little hermit crabs and it's basically like, oh, you know, he, he finds a new home in a shell that was already there and, but, but it's him that makes it a living thing. And, you know, they're trying to be like, oh, it's okay that you're here because the, the creatures are descendants and like it was an empty shell and we're we're bringing life to it and blah 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 and i just don't know if it really is is a compelling enough if argument it scans yeah i yeah i just think like basically considering the idea that th- this is clearly not a place where people have to live and they don't have to necessarily live in this way like the fact that they're building like a bathhouse right um like obviously this place had some place where the airbenders bathed i assume that you could refurbish and and restore or whatever and if not then yeah you you have to kind of leave like i'm sorry that you're refugees but But i mean so is everybody so is everybody and they're not even safe from the fire nation there as was shown right you know like, they were working for the Fire Nation in turn for protection, and the minute they stopped, the Fire Nation was going to get them, and it was only because right. there were these, like, the gang was there that they were really able to do anything about it. Right, and I mean, the, the Tinkerer, he's, uh, he's literally stealing uh, technology and cultural artifacts and selling them for profit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, to, I don't know, if, like, to, to the people who nation. killed 
Right. So it's kind of the equivalent of like, you know, selling uh, German tech, selling like Jewish technology to Nazi Germany uh, or, (laughs) you know, selling Native American technology to (laughs) the Americans. I mean, honestly, like the Navajo code talker is a little bit like the fact that they're like, ah, yes, we'll use these people whose language are so unknown to the rest of the world because we genocided them (laughs) that it can be used effectively as a code. Like, you know, no one really talks about that part of that story, you know? They're always just like, oh, yeah, it was an unbreakable code. So great. (sighs) It's because of genocide. Unbreakable. Yeah, so, and I think this is also, aside from that, this is the episode where we get a lot of Sokka, um, Doing oh, yeah, Sokka the Inventor. Things. I don't really get why this is a part of his character, but I guess it, it is maintained from this point onward. Well, I mean, I, I think it's something that they've at least lightly laid the groundwork for. You know, like, Sokka's been the one to come up with plans in the past. Like, Sokka's the one... Yeah, I mean, he's a planner, but, like, when has he ever expressed an interest in, like, technology? Like, he fights with a boomerang and a stick. <laughs> like... I don't know. It seems like kind of a stretch for, for also, him at, at this point. I, I don't know, because I, I think it's the sort of thing where this is the first leg of their journey. You know, before this, all he knew was a patch of ice where the most advanced technology was a boomerang and a stick. You know, like. Sure. But I mean, you, you never saw him being like super fascinated with like, oh, how does the transit system in Omashu work? Or like. You know, talking about uh, the the ships and like how the vents work and stuff. I mean, he he does like seem to understand the vents. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, more just like in a we need to solve this practical problem that's in front of us and make a strategy sort of way, not in a like ooh just the engineering of it. But Mwah. but I think I think that holds true. Like I don't think he ever becomes an engineer. You know, like he's always he kind of like, does. He's he eh. becomes really fascinated with like oh we got to put a lid on a you know on an air balloon. Like he basically invents like half the technology that we end up seeing in the later seasons, <laughs> like in this episode and then in. Uh, <laughs> In season three. It's nuts. I mean, it's it's one sort of major piece of technology that then people also, like, modify entirely. Like, you know, the fire balloons that we see in season three are way different from what the Fire Nation manages to steal um, in, in this episode. Sure, but doesn't he also then invent, like, earthbending tanks and a submarine later? I don't, did he invent them? I guess it all happens off The joke off is that he draws, like, pictures of them, and then the tinkerer invents them. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's fine. That tracks. That's fine. These big ideas. I don't know. It's just the point being, like, this is kind of out of nowhere for him, and it's eh. not super interesting or integral to the plot, and if you took it out, you might not have to rush through this shit so fast. Uh, I mean, I guess. Um... But I don't know. I like it. It gives Sokka something to do for the episode, and yeah. and I think I I think it tracks, um, sure. based on what we've seen and what we'll continue to see. All right. Um. Anything else for for this one? Um. I thought I think it's weird how little rascalsy this this battle is. Yeah. Like a they're dropping bit. stink bombs and sn- smoke bombs. It's like. 
Really? I mean, you can't come up with any better bombs? And then they end up just blowing them all the fuck up anyway. So what was the point in having them use nonviolent weaponry? (laughs) Yeah. My my big thought uh, is that they've blown up like half the mountain. How do they got to get down again? You know, I don't think like, they are planning on getting down again. I think they're planning on living off the land on a barren mountain. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Like if they can fly down, they can glide down, but they, I don't know how, how they'll get, they get back, back up. up again. I mean, I guess you could build a like an elevator thing. It wouldn't be too Or hard. a hot air balloon, I suppose. Or a hot but. air balloon, yeah. Um, I just like the ending the of the episode where this is like um, some foreshadowing that doesn't come back for a whole season, where or season and a half really, um, mm-hmm. and and that's that like the firebenders get a hold of the hot air balloon and they're like, aha! Today's loss is the gateway to many future victories. Right. <laughs> so this is like a major plot point that. It happens in the episode where we're, you know, talking about stink bombs and hermit crabs. Yeah. Um, I also want to talk once more just about, like, cartoon violence and, like, they blow up an entire mountain and then, like, also Aang does this crazy avalanche and, like, some people died, you know? Like, I I don't know. Yeah, but they attacked first. I mean, this is self-defense. No, I think that's fine. But I think especially considering uh, events that happen later in this this season in Avatar and Aang's concern about killing people, some people died, you know? That's all I'm going to say. Well, I mean, Aang's thing is always just like any preventable death is good. I sure. mean, like, if you can prevent the death. Like, he he's not about, like, literally no one can ever die and I have to save everyone's life. I mean, it is a war. He understands that. And he's fighting to protect these people. And he's knocking these people off a mountain. It was their decision to climb that mountain and, and shit. I mean, like, yeah, there was nothing was... really he could do to save all of them. I, I know. I... Ugh. I, I don't, they do their I don't best. They're dropping I, stink bombs. They do do their best. They do do their best. That's that's that was my last thought for for this one. Um, the cultural appropriation Avatar episode. Oh yeah, I had one more thing, which is okay. um, th- there was like this con- consistent animation error, where the oh, no. idea for the the idea for the um, the inventor guy was that he has like a, a ring around his eye that's uh that's like a, a scar from when the thing blew up and he was like looking through an eyeglass or something. Oh. Or or had a monocle in or something and then it blew up in his face. And so he was supposed to have like a round scar around his eye, but the animators thought it was like a monocle so it keeps falling off his face. <sighs> but it's still colored like it's a scar. So that was weird. I always just thought it was like a weird monocle. No, I didn't it was a you can't have a flesh-colored shirt. monocle. That's gross. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of red. It's not. I wouldn't call it flesh. Yeah, well, it wasn't supposed to be a monocle. All right, all right. That was, a, that was an animation error. Gotcha, Avatar. Um. All right, Waterbending Master. The... Episode eighteen. We're this in the a... North Pole, which is like Ice Venice. It's like. It's it's different from Omashu a little bit, but like still kind of following that consistent pattern of 
Avatar, where it's like a bending-based society, and you just kind of like have thing you kind of figure things out from what they're able to bend. So right. in here, instead of the the like Earth uh, roller coaster ride thing to send mail everywhere, they have these like Venice style canals, canals everywhere. Yeah. Um, it's, it's pretty cool. And like, you know, the, the introduction to the city is pretty impressive. Like they have these big gates and similar to Omashu, you know, like you have to have a ton of waterbenders, uh, sort of open and close these gates and sort of like fill these like locks. Um, and it, it, I don't know, it, like, it's cool. It's pretty, it's clearly much more built up than the South Pole. Um, like Katara and Sokka both sort of feel like, they're both a little bit like, wow, this is really, really different. You know, like, there are, there are ch- chiefs and princesses here, and <laughs> right. back at home, I'm the prince of a snow pile, you know? Yeah. He's um, a dirty peasant. Dirty peasant. Um, so, so this is the one about feminism, but it's also the one where Sokka gets a crush. Uh... And yeah. it happens in, like, literally ten seconds. Which, like, fine. But, like, it really shocked me on a rewatch how much this relationship is, like, not really built up at all. Like, it's really, really insta-lovey. And, like, like it's kind of yeah, wild. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's just kind of starts off as, like, y- you know, just an attraction. Sure. And the reason it gets so dramatic so instantaneously is because... What she's really upset about isn't that she can't be with Sokka, whom she loves, but just that she's, you know, betrothed to a, a man that she has no interest in. Right. Which is, which is plenty interesting for me. You know, I don't need them to be, like, true Romeo and Juliet, like, insta-love lovers. It's just like... You know, Sokka's... but the drama of it feels to that level. Like I, I agree that I like this. Like oh, I'm betrothed to someone else, and and I think it gets handled much better in the finale episodes than than um, this this first one where it's introduced. Um, but it's just like it's it's just very strange. <laughs> but Sokka is just the king of swing. I mean, he's. He's hot to trot. People are really interested in Sokka and what Clearly. he has to say. Clearly. Um, I mean, it's possible that the animation just isn't properly conveying how attractive he is. Maybe maybe <laughs> oh, he's, I like, had... really drop-dead gorgeous. I mean, I had a lot of friends who were very into Sokka, so... Yeah. I mean, so, yeah. There you go. I mean, I get it. Um, I like yeah, how so... there's an established legal age of consent. Uh, for the Avatar universe in this episode. Well, it's the legal age of 16. marriage. Whether or not well, it's... yeah. So then that then you yeah. can certainly consent after that, yeah. after you're married. Um, but, yeah, so <laughs> interesting on them to be like, yep, we're going to establish a, a, a specific age at which they can get married, and it's not going to be 18. Just, <laughs> it's not going to be. Like, they could have just said well, 18. They could have said 18, but then you get into the weird thing where Sokka's not 18, and if he's got a crush on this girl, you get into, like, weird shit about an 18-year-old kissing a 15-year-old, you know? 
Yeah, you know, and then also they could have just made Sokka 18 also. They could have, They do but put it's him a... in very romantic situations. But, it's, but they but made like... the choice that they're going to be 16 and they're going to be talking about getting married and having kids. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but but I don't know. I don't think it's some big statement or anything. No, it's not. I just I find it funny. Okay. Um, so, so basically the, the big issue with this is one, Sokka's hot for the princess and she kind of likes him back, but she's engaged. Two, Aang's trying to learn waterbending and so is Katara, but the North Pole's sexist and they don't teach girls how to do fighting waterbending. They just teach them how to do healing waterbending. And so Katara's not too happy about that. And then the other one is that... Zhao tries to assassinate Zuko. <laughs> right. All right. Well, we'll get to that. We'll get to the C plot in, in like a bit. Yeah. I, I kind of want to just talk about the juxtaposition. What do you think about the juxtaposition of like talking about arranged marriages right next to the one about, you know, like women stay in the healing hut. You can't fight. Is, are those two things related in your eye or are they just completely separate? I mean, I think they certainly can be related. It, it depends on how arranged marriages work. And in this one, it really does seem like UA doesn't have a lot of say in the matter, you know? And especially True. later um, in the finale, like, she talks a lot about that she has to do it because she has to do her duty and serve her people. Um, but, you know, here Yeah, I don't know how that works when she's the, the princess, like... Right, but and we're also not really given a lot of context on why this engagement to this person is made in the first place and, like, what, like, like we're just supposed to sort of buy into the fact that it's somehow advantageous, you know? Sure. Um, and so, so I, I think they're, they're very interesting to be next to each other in, in this episode, this idea of arranged marriage versus, um, women knowing their role in society. Um, Because I think they're both roles that get assigned to the various women in the episode. But yeah, so during this, um, we also get a little bit of backstory um, where it turns out Katara and Sokka's grandmother, Gran Gran, um, whose name is Kana, we find out, she originally came from the Northern Tribe and went to the Southern Tribe to escape her arranged marriage. Um, And... So, so I think there's, like, a really direct tie to between the two in that, you know, Katara only exists and grew up where she did because of someone else rebelling against these restrictive... Right. She literally sort of calls them your stupid traditions. Yeah. Like, to his face, like, your stupid <laughs> traditions of arranged marriage. Yeah. I don't know. I just think, like, there's something kind of anti-woke about that when a lot of cultures still to arrange marriages to this day, and they aren't, you know, human rights abuses. <laughs> I mean, yes, but it, it's always the uncomfortable area where, you know, as people who are not necessarily members of that culture, it's it can be really uncomfortable and iffy to for us to critique them. But, you know, if people within those systems are finding them restrictive or rebelling against, which does happen, then, you know... Right, but this is a show written by two white guys. No, I... I, Yes, you're right. 
You're right. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. I just I just think that it's a little odd that like following up the cultural appropriation episode is an episode where they culturally appropriate the fuck out. Um, I guess they're kind of covering their tracks because the whole show of Avatar is a little bit culturally appropriative. Yeah, yeah, the whole show is, but. Yeah, it's it's you know it's really nice of them to that. you know give get themselves off the hook for you know for example inhabiting a culture and modernizing it, adding magic and you know more action kung fu and right. a bunch of slapstick to but make it marketable it and then selling David. it to make money off of it. But they what? Did it respectfully. respectfully, yeah, right. Yeah. They've got it. They've got the Asian spirit. spirit. Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's it's nice of them to get get themselves off the hook for that. Um, <laughs> but but let's talk about Katara because this is the big the biggest Katara episode of the season. I would yeah. say. Yeah, for sure. Um, so you know she she shows up to waterbending practice with Aang, and the master's like, "No, sorry, lol, not teaching you GTFO." Um, and Aang's ready to sort of, like, walk out with her in protest, but Katara's like, no, you, like, you, you do need to learn this shit, <laughs> like, it sucks, but, but you do need to learn this. Um, and then later they get the bright idea, oh, Aang, you can just teach me what you learn at night, and then, you know, plot convenience, the master, Paku, catches them, uh, training together, and is like... Well, it's not plot convenience, I mean, that's the opposite of, it's like a, it's a... Um, like a plot twist, I guess. But it's I just, mean, it's a plot you know. twist, but it's, it's like there's no reason why he should necessarily find them, but he just He's does. Out for a stroll, yeah, um, you know. I, I think it's for for pacing's sake. I I will absolutely accept that. That's how he finds out. Yeah, no, it's it's fine. Um, like it's it's smushed in there, but we don't need to dwell on it or drag it out. So sure, yeah, I'd agree. Um, and then, you know, they go before the chief and the chief is kind of like, well, I don't know what you want me to do about it. Like, I can't force him to teach you. And part of me is kind of like, well, you're the chief. Like, couldn't you, <laughs> you know, like, should, but he doesn't he want to, to do cause that? he also, he also believes in his own cultural, whatever norms. norms. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so Basically, he's like, well, maybe if you apologize, he'll take Aang back as a student. Uh, and so Katara's and trying just, to... Sw- she's yeah. trying to swallow her pride, but then, like, Paku, like, rubs some salt in the wound. is like, I'm waiting, little girl. And she's like, you know what? Fuck you. And does her, like, rage <laughs> feminism waterbending, and, like, shit just starts cracking. And she's like, meet me outside for a fucking throwdown. <laughs> Cash me outside. How about that? Yeah. Um, like... I just think it's funny because it's not only that she doesn't apologize, you know, and just like, it's not like she quietly says like, I will never apologize for, you know, uh, for opposing these incorrect traditions. She just escalates it like so far. Like she's, she's, she is ready to take down the patriarchy by herself with no help from others. And I'm so about it. It's so great. And it's like the hypest fight afterwards. (laughs) Like, it's you know, really like, hype. I think it's it's a lot of like little things that make it good. But like, what yeah. what do you like about the fight? Well, I just love the fact that like you know like she's out there waiting for him, and he he like exits the building and like isn't gonna fight her, and then she just starts like like water whips him in the back of the head, and he's like, all right, fine. Um, and then I I just love that like 
for everything he throws at her, like, she's always got a response. Like, she she loses, but, like, like damn, yeah, she puts she up a good Yeah, she just keeps getting fight. knocked down, but she keeps getting back up. You know, oh, it's like wait, the I nevertheless she persisted meme. It's, which, well, it's, you know, it's the best scene in Captain Marvel. The one where you get the montage of her standing back up a million times. Like, right. fuck yeah. That's some empowering shit. I don't know. Is that the best scene in Captain Marvel? Well, never mind. We don't want to talk about Captain Marvel. <laughs> we will talk about Captain Marvel. <laughs> it's another topic. Um, yeah, but, like, she's never, like, has the upper hand on him, but he does have to, like, reassess at times. And, right, like, and, and they literally He does say, pull out all the stops, which right. is kind of, like, whoa, whoa. Like, you're, like, taking a bunch of spikes and flinging them into the air? Like, you have to right. try this hard to stop someone who has no formal training? Right, like, damn. And and I think it's, it's you know, I, I could see someone being like, well, when did Katara get this good at waterbending? Like, she could barely do a waterbending. Over the course of the whole season. Right, exactly. Like, I, I think, and especially in the last episode when she's, like, fucking waterbending wheels off of tanks, you know? It's not like this is coming out of nowhere. It's, like, she's been really... Each episode, I think, has upped the ante on Katara's waterbending. Yeah, I don't think we've, like, tracked it, like, so specifically. But at a certain point, it stopped being a question of, like, can Katara do this move? And just became a question of, like, What's the coolest well, move what does she, she need do? to do to beat this guy? Right, right. Um, so, so they're head the ship. And, and during the fight... Um, he even says, you know what, like, you're not too bad, like, this is pretty impressive, and she's like, but you're still not gonna teach me, are you? And he's like, nope, and then they keep fighting. And it's just, like, it's so spiteful, you know, like, at that point it stops becoming a question of, like, tradition or having to prove yourself, it's just, like, pure spite. About respect. Well, yeah, it's about, like, trying to gain the other person's respect, but also not really valuing their respect. So that, I guess that does sort of manifest as spite. But I don't think he's trying to gain her respect. You know, like, he, he sort of respects... He's, trying, he's demanding her respect that because he feels that he's entitled to respect because of his his age and his, you know, his role Position. as, like, a master in this society. Right, right. Um, and I'm, I don't know. I'm still always kind of confused about the resolution to this and, like... The fact, like, why he totally agrees to teach her, because during the course of the fight, Katara's necklace gets knocked off, and turns out the betrothal um, that Katara's grandmother was escaping was, like, to this guy, to Master Paku. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, I think it's pretty obvious, is that, that Master Paku is an incel. <laughs> right? Like, he I had his it, one yeah. true love... He has one true love who abandoned him because he was a sexist jerk. And then he like suddenly like realizes that this shit is coming back to bite him in the ass. And he's like, oh my God, I never had sex my whole life because I'm a sexist jerk. And then, uh, and then that realization caused him to think like, well, maybe if I just virtue signal a little bit, then then maybe I'll get (laughs) laid at some point. Oh my god. He's an yep. incel. You've, you've nailed it. Um, Avatar hot take. <laughs> Master Pock is an incel. Um, yeah. But, yeah. And, and it's weird, because, like, while he's having his whole speech about, um, 
you know, like, oh, I loved her. And Katara's like, but she didn't love you, so she ran away. Like, Yue, the princess, starts crying and runs away yeah. as well. Um, and Aang sort of looks at Sokka and smiles knowingly and is like, go get her. And it's like... <laughs> go to oh, her. <laughs> Come okay. on, guys, have time of need. Like, this, like, that's what I'm saying. Like... At what point did this relationship become like a go getter buddy? You know, like she's she's emotionally vulnerable and ready to fall into your arms. Like what? What are you talking about? She expressed about? interest in him. She wanted to go do an activity. I mean, yeah. yeah. She just didn't like the didn't like getting the carved uh, shark fish bear uh, mm. because <laughs> it, it, he thought it was she thought it was like a betrothal thing. Um, yeah, so that's what we also find out, is that the the necklace that Katara's been wearing, um, and we see that Yue later has one as well, is actually a betrothal necklace where the the boy carves it and gives it to the person he would like to be betrothed to. Um, and so, so that's where we are. Uh, it ends with Paku training both Katara and Aang, Sokka finds out Yue's engaged, but, like, they still clearly have feelings for each other. And, oh, yeah, we didn't even talk about Zuko getting bombed to hell uh, on yeah, the we're, ship. Yeah, we're about to talk about that. Let's talk about the Zuko, because this, this is all set up for the, the finale for Zuko. Yeah. Is that Zhao figures out that Zuko was the blue, uh, the blue spirit, yeah. and rather than having him arrested for treason... Is like I'm going to hire pirates to blow him up. You know the old pirates from before. Yeah, I don't know why we're bringing back the pirates. I don't know how I they got this was, far north. I don't. I don't know how they got this far north, but I. I, I think it was Zhao's attempt to cover up the motive. You know, because later. Right. I mean, like that makes sense, but how would he even know about these pirates? Like. I mean, he's an he, army general. You would. You would think he'd be able to dig up some intel. I I don't know. I think it's just they didn't want to design more characters. <laughs> like they're like oh, bring the pirates back, I guess. Um Yeah. Yeah, that being said, like the the um the explosion because what the way that the pirates are going to assassinate uh <laughs> assassinate a firebender. Zuko is in the most subtle way possible with like 10 tons of TNT <laughs> loaded onto the boat. Yeah. Uh, but it's like a super badass scene where we like cut to like different angles of the explosion. It's it's very Michael Bay, very John Woo, um, very just very exciting. Um, it is. And, and like they build up the expense, the the suspense pretty decently too, with like Zuko walking around this abandoned ship, and then he sees the parrot, and he's like, "Holy shit, this place is gonna explode!" <laughs> and then it does. And Iroh's out taking a walk. Oh, also, we missed the best song. We didn't talk about best song, Four Seasons. Best song. It's the best song. I do think that's interesting that they just sort of take a second, like, it's just we're cutting to uh, Zuko's ship for the first time in the episode. And the establishing shot is just listening to Iroh, who, you know, like, Mako, his voice actor, is not famous for singing. But just to have, like, an old guy singing a folk song that they made up, yeah, that's pretty cool. And it's it's pretty cool, and, you know, there's great tension when sort of, like, the string on the instrument, like, snaps when the, the bad guys appear. 
Um, yeah. You know, like, there's some good sound mixing going on there, and then just, like... I, I don't then, know. It, and it then becomes. Zuko says, I told you for the last time, Iro, I'm not gonna play the flugelhorn. Yeah, like, like <laughs> it's interesting because you know, like a giant fucking explosion takes place here, but the rest of this, like all of the C plot around Zuko, this episode is really kind of quiet up until the explosion. Because um, it's all and, set up. Well, it's all set up, but it's it's a nice, I think, pacing break from the rest of the episode, which is really jam packed because you have this really dramatic and complicated stuff going on in the water tribe. Um, and sure. I think just, well, you don't want to wise, distract from it. You don't, I don't think they distract from it. And I think it, yeah. it gives it time to breathe. And I, I like that, um, yeah. contrast. I think they, this they is do. probably my favorite episode of, of, of the season, despite season like one. some of the confusing themes. <laughs> um, I think the waterbending masters is really solid it's and it just really has good. a lot of interesting stuff going on for everybody. For sure. Absolutely. Um, um, so yeah, so Zuko supposedly dies, but it turns out at the very end of the episode that he doesn't, and he snuck aboard Zhao's ship headed north to invade the Water yep. Tribe. Um, and and it Iroh, won't be the last time. It that won't he's be the... <laughs> undercover. <laughs> yeah, um, but he uh, Iroh publicly joins uh, Zhao's ship as. Uh, an assistant general or something. Yeah, I thought that was interesting that even though Zhao doesn't really trust Iroh, he respects him enough. Yeah. You know, it kind of shows the, like, you know, the honor in their society and how much respect they have for elders and their experience. Even well, if, I think you know, he considers just, Iroh a failure. Sure, but also just, like, how much respect, like, Iroh just kind of gets period you know like even if he's currently this sort of seen as like a bumbling failure of a man like hanging out with his banished nephew like he he did some intense shit back in the day you know yeah and and people know it um yeah you're right but yeah and, and so we'll see more of them in in the finale um and we'll talk about that next episode because <laughs> Even though we're pretty deep into this episode, we still have to talk about civil wars. Civil wars. It's uh, th- this is a two-parter. Um, this yeah. season has too many two-parters. I don't so know. So many. I don't know what the fuck is up with it, especially considering that the whole episode, the whole season is connected. Like yeah. it's all con- contiguous. So like the idea of having a two-parter doesn't really make any sense. I mean, or it doesn't I, really I don't make remember them difference. being released at the same time, were they? I, I don't remember. Uh, we could look it up. Nope, they were aired a week apart. So wow. I don't know what the fuck they're doing. That's uh, really weird. Yeah, same thing. Well, but the, the, the other two-parter that comes later, they were aired at the same time. But, like, this one, I just don't know why it needs to be a two-parter. They, I mean, they just have to come up with a second episode title. <laughs> <It's> all. <laughs> um, uh, but, like... Whatever. Honestly, half of these episode titles are like bad. <laughs> well, they're all they're all pretty bad. But I mean, you can't judge an episode yeah. based on its cover. No, you can't. Um, but you but can the, judge most of these episodes are also the bad. That they're bad. <laughs> yeah. Oh god. I mean, um, so oh, let's god. just talk about like you know what we were talking about last episode we were talking about potential well i was cuz i felt like it was a really strong thematic opening we've got a lot of themes that we're juggling and then this episode drops all of that and 
goes for instead an Iraq war allegory that doesn't work. Is it Iraq war? I feel like it has to be. Like, what else What else could it possibly be? It's a religious fundamentalist who takes over uh, a racially distinct, but, uh, or, you know, ethnically distinct, but culturally connected uh, population. And then Cora tries to go and... Get uh, the president involved. Yeah, tries to get the United States to intervene. And, um, and provide weapons to, the, to some rebels. Yeah. Yeah. And there's human rights abuses and, you know, Ugh. blah, blah, blah. It's, 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 it's an Iraqi Civil War thing. I don't know which Iraqi Civil War it's supposed to be, but there's been a lot of them and there's been a lot of U.S. involvement in, in all of them. <laughs> yeah. So it's not great. Yeah. Um, the subplot in this one is also just that Aang was a bad father, which, love that, thanks. Okay, well, let's talk about that, because at least, like, that's something we can argue about, um, because I don't think that that's necessarily a bad subplot. I just don't understand, okay, because they do this with Harry Potter, too, in The Cursed Child, where they're like, yes. Okay, but why is it bad that they do it with Harry Potter, either? Either it's an interesting plot, or it's not, and I feel like I don't for think these it's characters, an interesting plot, and I, for I these think characters that we're, that we're watching, it's interesting to talk about their dynamic, and their dynamic is inherently uh, shaped by their childhoods, because sure. they're siblings. Sure, I think These are adult fine. siblings having conflict, but which, you can I mean... Have... You can we, have, all know, we all know about that. Yes, and you can have really interesting sibling dynamics that doesn't mean that, like, you had a shitty parent, you know? like. Well, I don't think they were saying that Aang was a shitty parent, but that he clearly gave more attention to Tenzin because, and, and didn't spend as much time with his kids as he did out, you know, journeying around the world, having adventures and solving people's problems. But that, which, like, seems... I don't know. Maybe I'm crazy, but that seems wildly out of character. Why? Why? Because Aang by the like, end of by the end of Avatar: people. The Last Airbender, I mean, he's got a huge sense of duty. Sure, he's got That's a huge sense of learned. duty, but like, if he like, why would he take one of his sons on an adventure? Like, Aang's such a fucking show off. He'd want to take all of his kids and be like, "Look how cool of a dad I am," you know? Like, like well, they nothing... were specifically airbending adventures. Like, I think probably right, like, you can infer like a lot of stuff that you can infer a lot of stuff that you know may or may not have been true. Like, maybe. Um, you know, maybe they were afraid to take Boomy because Boomy is fragile because he's not a bender. You know, but like Aang maybe... traveled around with lots of non-benders who were far from fragile, and yeah, but like... they weren't his children. Sure, like, like that's what I'm saying. Like, there's a lot of blank space that this leaves us that I, I think you can make arguments for either side, but I think it's like this inherently strange choice to take the person who like, you know, there's constant references in Korra back to Avatar and how cool and great Avatar was. And like in this one, they name drop like Kyoshi Island and Fire Island and like all these places that the characters in Avatar go to. Um, but, and like, you know, like there does seem to be this like reverence for it, but then they're like, but what if we just like, totally tore down this heroic image that we had of this person and not in like an interesting way that like questions heroism in a way that is just here to fuel like sibling angst like I don't understand what the value of that is I don't find it interesting I don't 
I don't like it, basically. I, I, I just don't understand that on a fundamental level. Like, it, like Boomy's bending envy is, like, a, a central part of his character. If you're going to have his character in the show at all... Sure. Like, that's something that needs to be explored. The fact that he you know, feels inadequate in his ability to save the world as compared to his siblings. And then, you know, um, like, uh, Kaya's like middle child syndrome where she feels like she didn't get any attention because her older brother was such a, uh, you know, such an attention hog and his, and, and her younger son got a lot of attention for being literally, the future of the airbending race. I mean, that's central to her character. Sure. And then, but I think you can have all of that without Aang playing favorites. Well, I, I wanted to finish up and talk about Tenzin's, you know, cent- centrality to his character. Where if we're talking about him as a parent, it's important that we it, that we understand how he was raised because that's like a cyclical thing. So if we're going to talk about his kids, we need to talk about Aang as a father. So like all these things are important. So, and and if it's going to be like a driver of conflict, you have to talk about like where Aang came up short as a parent rather than where he was an amazing parent. Like, don't you? I mean, sure. I don't know. Like, no it's... parents are perfect, and, like, sure. everyone fucks their kids up. Of course. Like, I don't think it's saying, like, you have to now hate Aang as a person. It's just, like, their relationship was complicated. I, I don't know. I think you could... I, I don't think it necessitates Aang playing favorites. Um, and I think that's the part of it that I, I take the most issue with. But maybe they just interpreted what he did as playing favorites. But th- that's not... It doesn't matter. The point is that, like they felt that way as kids and you know it might have been even things that like ang didn't do but that society did you know maybe society like gave more attention to tenzin i I, sure i i think that is also but they blame their father but but we're given they ding their father and not society and i'm just glad they didn't do fucking flashbacks for this one because sure i agree like just wait till season three where we get like a ton of flashbacks about fucking Toph, and i hate it yeah Um, and then i'll be right there with you with them like shitting all over character development from the last airbender (laughs) but for now i feel like the fact that it's through the lens of like what these characters are feeling makes it less sort of sacrilegious it's more just about them and i think their dynamic is interesting and and worth developing um i i think it's possible i find it kind of boring personally i'm not particularly i I can see that i mean i'll tell you one thing like the airbender kid scene with uh you know with milo and uh janora is excruciating it drags Like, I don't know what the fuck they're doing. It's like they're lying to each other and then like all other adults are piggybacking off of the lies and then uh, Pema is like yelling at them and then they're like apologizing but like not saying where Icky is. It just keeps going on. It does. It just keeps from happening. Um (laughs) Uh, yeah, this one's an interesting one on the relationship front in general, because, you know, we get more and more of the horrible, played-for-laughs abusive relationship between Eska and Boleyn, 
Um, I don't even think I like maybe hate. in some version of some script it could be possible to depict that abusive relationship in a way that is humorous. Just legitimately, there is no joke here. It's just no. watching Bolin cry and sob and beg for help. Right, and, and everyone else being like, God, why are you being such a pussy, Bolin? Like, just, just break up with up her. her. Just break up with her, you piece of shit. But also, I and hate like, Mako's line where he's like, yeah, you can just break up with her. And, like, Bolin's like, you can do that? And he's like, yeah, guys do it all the time. And I'm like, then why don't you just fucking break up with Asami last season, you, like, two-timing piece of shit? <laughs> well, I mean, they kind of call Mako. that out. Like, uh, Bolin says... Uh, good thing you're so good at, at breaking women's hearts. hearts. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know if that's a good line. It didn't make me laugh, but I just thought it was notable. Um, yeah. God, ah. just... If they could come up with something funny, that would be really great. Uh, like, just some kind of comedic relief that's actually a relief. Yeah, instead or funny, of, instead of bullying. Can you just spend more time with Varric? Because I do kind of find him funny. Varric's very funny in large swaths of this, um, before he I, begins you know, to when transform. Before he what? Begins to transform into the villain. I, I don't know. I, we'll, we'll talk about that when we get to it, but I mean... I'm totally on board with Varric in, in, in these episodes, at least, because he's in a bear. He is in a bear. He's in, in a it's bear. Um, so there's, in, in Civil Wars Part 1, there's uh, a line where basically they're, they're all having, like, a meeting at Korra's dad's house, a bunch of the Southerner, and Varric is there. Um, and is trying to explain, you know, is an Unalak apologist right now, and is kind of like, oh, he's just trying to unite the South into one unified water tribe, which yeah, is like... Why is she immediately taking sides? Like, I don't I don't know. understand this at all. Well, one, she's immediately taking sides, but then whenever she tries to, like, switch to another side or something, everyone else is, like, mad at her, and then she's like, well, I'm just trying to be fair and balanced, TM. And it's, and like, it's like, then why were you immediately siding with people who literally invaded your village? Like, it just right. doesn't make any sense for her character. If like, anything, I would expect her to immediately lash out at Unalak and then get backlash for that. Right. I mean, I don't know. I can sort of see it because he did the thing where he he figures out really quickly that she's really... Uh, susceptible to, to flattery. flattery. Yeah, like, you flatter her and tell her that she's cool and powerful and gonna be the best avatar, and she's like, wow, you're my favorite person. I'll do whatever you want. You're probably Which so about everything. Which is why this sucks, because it's the same plot as Tarlock from season yeah. one, except for dragged out for, like, a two-parter. Yeah. I hate it. And I hate it so much. Another, like, waterbending, like, fucking brothers that have issues with each other and they're all evil, blah, blah, blah. Um, but, but so basically Korra's like, oh, he wants to unite the tribes. And Varric's like, no, he wants power and wealth. And specifically he wants my wealth. So time to revolt. Um, and I just think it's interesting that like Varric could give a shit about anyone else, but he's like, you coming for my money? No way. Not happening. Yeah, I think Varric's motivation, you know, makes sense because he's the stand-in in in the Iraq war for the greedy capitalists trying to profit off of the, you know, 
I mean, that's very overt. And and it's pretty, you know, straightforward. And so I think the villain reveal is, like, it it should be obvious. But, um, you know, I I guess a lot of kids watching don't understand that capitalists are the bad guys. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Which they are. Um, Which which we'll get to. Um, But so, you know, in this one... Korra's like, no, we can't revolt, and goes to Unalak, who's, like, literally sitting in the dark in a palace in, like, a fucking evil lair. Like, it's <laughs> he so He does have an evil extra. lair. It's so But extra. I guess if you, were, if you were in an evil lair, would you, would you assume that the person in it was evil, or would you be like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm being judgmental. I mean, sure, your house looks evil, but, I mean, that doesn't mean, say anything about you. I mean, yeah, but, like, if I came across someone sitting in the dark... <laughs> like at that point, listen. I'm gonna don't be, like, be racist okay? against lighting. Don't be racist against l- people. People who sit in bad lighting. Ugh, I just can't do it. I don't get it. It's not for me. He does look uh, really evil, though. He but does, he does look evil. And he talks really evil. He talks really evil. It's like incredibly cartoony, and I'm like, Cora, come on, girl. Like. You can't be a little more trope savvy. Like he's literally like villain spouting and and telling you to play into your ego that you're gonna be able to solve saw... this like decades long like issue that's been going on between the two tribes apparently in like three days and like no problem yeah. you've got this. Yeah, like here's here's an idea. Here's a pitch. Like. One of the reasons that Cora is so difficult to relate to is that she's not a very internal person. No. Like, everything's externalized. So, rather than being, like, internally conflicted about something and being like, I don't know what to do. I gotta think of a solution. Oh, well, I can I could do this, but that would cause this problem. I could do that, but it would cause this problem. And then, like, worrying about that. She's the kind of person who will just be like, I'm going to threaten a legal official with yeah. a bear until he tells me all the plot. Oh, my God. Yeah, so so basically, assassins come, try to get Unalak. He, he, you know, Cora catches them, thinks one of them's her dad. Turns out it isn't. But then her parents get arrested anyway um, by Unalak. Because the, because the meeting of the rebels was in their house. Right, right. Which is totally fair. I mean, if I was, like, a ruler of any country, whether I was a villain or a hero or somewhere in between, I would absolutely arrest the person who has the most to gain from a rebellion where they hosted a rebellion in my house. Right. And I would probably have them locked up for life if I could. Which is exactly I wouldn't what he necessarily tries. bribe a judge, but, I mean, come <laughs> Which on. Which is exactly what he tries to do, where he's like, oh, yes, I, I've hand-selected the most neutral and fair judge and Cora's like yeah cool this seems great um yeah I just like how much Cora thinks that she's accomplishing things in this episode (laughs) when she's not um it's kind of funny and it does actually make me laugh at her as a character because she's just that dumb um because she's she's like wait don't kill them immediately give them a right to a fair trial and then he's like fine I'll give them a fair trial lol no and then she's like i accomplished something and then in the i can't remember was in the the next part but during the trial she's she's like wait don't have them killed and he's like fine life in prison which is what i was gonna do anyway right she's like i accomplished something right like oh my dad's not gonna die and, like, they do the stupid thing where it's, like, her mom is released, but then her dad has to go to jail or whatever. And it's, like, okay, sure. 
<laughs> you know. I mean, like, that's believable in a pretty sexist society. So. Yeah, it's it's believable enough. Um, and just like, oh, there's like a subplot. So so, Varric's in the bear suit, uh, and they're plotting, and he's like, I know, we'll bribe the judge. Uh, and he gives the money to Bolin to bribe it, and Bolin just like hands it to some random fucking people. To the to which, people on the jury, but it wasn't like a jury. It wasn't thing. even in the jury. It was just other people in the audience. Like he just literally oh, gave right. it to some fucking randos. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty funny. I kind of like, like Bolin matched with Varric because they're just they're, there's a lot of contrast there, but also a lot of similarities. Right, in just both, how bombastic and willing to do wacky shit but Varric's a little smarter about his wacky shit um right and it's just way more interesting and fun than like Bolin talking about Eska and Deska oh my god yeah so there's just more crazy abusive relationship in this one uh where like he gets a weird makeover and is given like a betrothal necklace by Eska that is a fucking skull and it's funny, I guess, question mark. It's yeah. not, it's not And sometimes funny. they'll just drag some of those scenes out for like a minute and a half and then they'll just end without a punchline. Which, yeah. I mean, if you're going to drag it out that long, at least have it build and then end with like a big, you know, a wacky line or something, but it, it'll just but end it with like, you guys got to help me cut. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's, it's like, no, like someone help this person. Like literally, or no one. Someone help these to writers you. to just write a joke. Just, just write a fucking joke. joke ever. Any joke. Um, and so then you know after the trial, when Cora fucking corners this judge on like the road to nowhere. Like, where is he going? You know, like it's a minor. Going up a the nitpick, mountain for. But it's like fucking why? He'll be coming where, around the mountain when he comes. Like it's it's so bad. But then you know the judge spills the beans about Unalak that he's a bad person. And that he bribed him to release her mom, but, like, sentenced them to death. But then, you know, he'd intervene and make himself look like the hero. And then, turns out, womp womp, no surprise to anyone, he fucking framed her dad uh, so that he could take control of the northern tribe all those years ago uh, by hiring the bandits, I guess, or the barbarians. (laughs) It's just, yeah, I do. Why? It's a really like, why does he know plot. that? First of all, and then second of all, like, why does it matter that that was him who did that? Like, it was still a bad tactical move on his on Cora's dad's part. Like, it's yeah. just, it's just like a lot of dumb though, and like you know, it could have been an actual point of because right now I don't feel like I know who Cora's dad is at all. No. No idea. But, like, at least what I knew was that, like, he was kind of brash, like, his daughter, and, like, rushed into danger and and paid the price for it. And, you know, I knew that he loved his brother. And now I'm just like, well, his brother is a complete villain. (laughs) So his love for his Uh, brother is not going to really play a role because he's just pure evil. Um, Right. And he didn't make a mistake. He was tricked by Loki. Right into making a mistake and then you know like he and his wife are like we just wanted a simple life down here but you know here he is hosting rebellion like rebels and just i don't know fucking shit up (laughs) yeah i don't really get him 
Yeah. Um, also, if you haven't noticed, there's literally nothing spiritual happening in either of these two episodes in the season called Spirit, which is, like, a really great continuation of uh, <laughs> the fact that in the last season, which was about air, we really didn't do any airbending. It's it's just like, why, why? You know, like, the whole point of book one, Water, which we're coming to the end of now in Avatar, is that, you know, Aang's learning waterbending. He's learning things about, like, the Water Nation, and we're ending it, like, in, like, we started in the Water Tribe, and we're ending there, and, like, sure, we're gonna start with spirits, and we're gonna end with spirits in this one, but, like... There's shit in between that's also about water. <laughs> like, I don't know. Yeah, it, but I mean, there's spiritual stuff in the middle here, too. I just think, like, it's weird that we dropped all of the th- setup of themes from the last episode. Like, instead of it being about, like, modern technology interfering with spirits and stuff and changing the cultures and, 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 and all this stuff, it's completely replaced by just, like, a scramble for power. Because... Unalak is just pure evil and he just wants to control everyone and he doesn't really care about the spirits or the spirit world or or whatever except for what it can gain him in terms of power. So we've dropped almost all of the themes just because of that. We've dropped the modernism versus... the, the modernism versus spirituality. We've dropped brother versus brother. We've dropped you know well, independence I mean, versus unification. We've you know we've dropped almost everything in in favor of just like we got to stop the bad guy. Right, right. It's not there's not an interesting conflict anymore. It's just sort of black and white. No, I mean the whole fun of a civil war. I mean I hate to say fun, <laughs> but the whole point of civil war as a narrative is that both sides have some valid claim. Right. Like, am I stupid here? Like, no, when that's I watched exactly Captain it. America Civil War, the point was that Iron Man had a point and Captain America had a point. Now, I think Captain America was a goddamn idiot in Captain America <laughs> Civil War, but other people watched the same movie and thought that he was the smart one and, and Tony was the idiot. So, yeah. like, that's what you're supposed to get from a Civil War narrative. Right. That's not that's not what you get here. Like, if anyone is no. watching this going, I don't know, maybe Unalak's got a point. Like, you're on fucking drugs. Like, what are you talking right. about? And what's worse is all the parallels that they're trying to draw to Iraq. And I really feel like it is Iraq that they're drawing the, the parallels to. Where now they're saying, like, very specifically that, that there is a clear and definite villain scrambling for power in Iraq. Rather than a complex socioeconomic and, and, and uh, diplomatic uh, and clusterfuck caused yeah. by USSR and US... Uh, Fucking around <laughs> in the region for decades. Yeah, over oil, like right. very specifically over oil. Right, um, and it's not like they're—it's not like the rest of the world is trying to get this spirit energy or something, though. You know, it's just like right. Nope, the evil guy. It's just wants there it. was one bad guy. There's one Osama bin Laden dude named Unalak, and he's <laughs> just like—he's just like this liar who's who's trying to gain power and trying to take over the whole world. Yeah. <sighs> It's messy. Maybe they so, were trying to get to act to something simpler because they tried to do, you know, they tried to do kind of like a complex villain for the last season, but that didn't really work either. No. Maybe they just can't do anything more complicated than Hitler. Which, like, that's fine. Like, let's fucking take out Hitler. I think that's okay. 
but you just have to recognize that and not try to dress it up as other things, you know? As Syria or Iraq or something. Yeah, yeah. So the the two-parter ends with Korra, Varric, and the rest of the gang escaping on one of Varric's ship while Varric and Julie are still in the platypus bear suit that uh, poops money at one point as a distraction, <laughs> which, yeah. again, some actual humor. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I'll laugh at then, a line that where a random bystander shouts that platypus bear is pooping money. I'll do it. Yeah. I'll laugh. I'm not above it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then they get out in this like crazy, stupid action sequence that somehow Cora's like, I need to be on a plane to waterbend these boats out of the way. But it's like. I don't get I mean, it either. do you? Like, sure, okay. Like, it was clearly just, like, an action set piece, you know? Like, there was no actual Yeah, they're reason. trying to run the blockade, like we talked about a few episodes right. ago. But, like, it's not nearly as interesting a blockade. They're not in nearly as interesting a vehicle. It's mm-hmm. not a flying bison. No. You know, there's not these, like, complex, like, interplay between the people that they're running the blockade for and the people chasing them and the people... No, it's just... Gotta water bend these fuckers out of the way so we can go. Right, and which they do, and it's fine. Uh, and there's one more joke where Eska is chasing after Bolin, even after they get out of there. Um, but they're headed back to Republic City to try to, like... <laughs> Just when we know. thought we were out, they pulled us back in. We're fucking back. They're trying to get the president on their side. Because we left a bunch of characters behind in Republic City. We forgot to bring them with us. And the writers are like, oh shit, I forgot. Because season one only set up plot in Republic City and did no more world building than that, we cannot set our our story in another part of the world. Or we have to just like say goodbye to some characters, but they're not willing to do that either. So here we are. Right. Um, Well, yeah, I mean, like Mako, he's got to go be a cop. He's got to go be a cop. police chief there. Uh, we'll get to that next we'll episode. But, um, yeah. In so, conclusion. So this is where Korra is. In conclusion, it's a civil war that I guess is an Iraq metaphor versus Avatar, which is all the social justice shit uh, leading into a finale. Yeah. Oh, we're we're, we're going to, next time we're going to f- finish up book one, Avatar The Last Airbender. And we're going to get into some more of the nitty-gritty of uh, spirits and, and what's wrong with it. Uh, yeah, for Cora. So, yeah. Stay tuned, uh, everybody. So uh, if you have any thoughts on what we've talked about, uh, let us know at Talking Tropes on Twitter. Uh, you can support us on Patreon, also at Talking Tropes. Um, and we'll, we'll see you see around. See you around, time.